Hello and welcome to the O&M Stockroom. We're your hosts, Brian McGarry and Ken O'Malley. Tonight is episode 24 of Complimentary Cinema. If you are new to the channel, Complimentary Cinema is a program where we review and discuss films that you can watch for free that are available on YouTube. Please be warned, we discuss these films in detail. So consider this a full spoiler alert. So uh, it was your night to pick. And uh, what did we end up with, Ken? So we watched the 2014 horror movie film, Jezebel. Jezebel. Jezebel? A lot like Jezebel, which we talked about at the end after we just finished watching it. But it is, in fact, Jezebel because it takes place in the South. Yeah. Jezebel. Jess for short. Jesse. Yeah. So uh, so quick rundown for the new people. How do we pick these films? So these are free films that are available on YouTube that we have not seen before or has been very, very long time since we have seen. And uh, they are typically great quality movies on this service. <laughs> <laughs> they do have some actually pretty good gems, but a lot of them is it, it's really hit or miss what you're going to end up with because a lot of these we have never even heard of. Yes, we're, we're, we, we we pick them like almost out of a hat. We're rolling the dice every time, and sometimes you know you, you get doubles. Sometimes you you know strike out. And uh, we have uh, three primary criteria that we've kind of conjured up that we like for to review these films with, at least have these things in mind. So first one is: is it well written? Is it well acted? And is it well produced? And I think that pretty much covers the gamut of everything that makes a film. The script, how well the people performed, how well was it all thrown together at the end. So uh, will this 2014 film that we saw for free that we had never heard of, will it meet the challenge of those three criteria? We shall see. So this was uh, directed by Kevin Gruter, written by Robert Ben Garant. And our cast of characters include Sarah Snook as Jesse, Joel Carter as Kate, Mark Weber as Preston, David Andrews as Leon, Anna de la Reguera as Rosara, Amber Stevens West as the dead girl, uh, Chris Ellis as Sheriff Pruitt, and Brian Hallisay as Mark. And that pretty much covers all the people that you actually spend any time with. So, Ken, lay the uh, groundwork for the opening scene here. So we start with uh, Jessie, who is moving out. Um, it, it appears that she's moving in with her boyfriend. So he's helping her move, and she's they're loading up a pickup truck. And she uh, leaves with him. They're kind of pulling out of the driveway and... The boyfriend's looking at her and not looking to the left, and a big truck just runs right into the side of the car. Just absolutely smashes him. So uh, then we have kind of a little montage scene of in the hospital. You know, there's some kind of procedure going on. They're trying to save Jesse, and they pick out a, a chunk of her boyfriend's skull that's like embedded in her, and uh, it, it's it's pretty gruesome. It's a pretty metal scene, really. And uh, it starts off feeling like such a Hallmark movie for just a moment. You know, like the nice, young, happy couple that's reveling in the fact that they're going to have a kid and they're starting this new life together. And 
you know, uh, the young woman looks absolutely radiant. Her boyfriend looks like a, you know, a, a daytime soap opera guy with just the right amount of designer stubble. I mean, everything a girl could want. And then the truck happens. So the, uh, in the, the hospital while they're doing this procedure, she's like kind of coming out of consciousness where she's, you know, she's hearing things, uh, in the operating room or, you know, she's just kind of getting blurry, uh, sensory input from things around her. And, uh, you pick up pretty quickly that uh, she does have serious damage to her and uh, the boyfriend did not make it. She loses uh, the child that she was pregnant with. She loses her boyfriend. She can't walk. She's uh, crippled at least, at least temporarily. She's recovering, but she's recovering, but yeah, it did some serious damage to her. So, you know, she, she's, she's a hot mess. And then uh, the, a nurse asks her, you know, who can, who can uh, pick her up to take her home, but she has nowhere to go, really. We find out that her mother's been dead since childbirth. The aunt who raised her has died. And she's uh, completely uh, disconnected from her father, and yet he shows up and picks her up and takes her back to this uh, really beautiful old house in Louisiana. It's stuff we've seen some better days. It's kind of run down and just not well cared for. You get the idea that the dad isn't necessarily a attentive kind of person. You know, he just kind of does his own thing. He uh, he has a flask that he carries around with him all the time. It seems like he he drinks pretty regularly. He's got the the blue collar alcoholic schlub thing down to a T. The unkempt hair, the the shaggy you know Van Dyke. The open shirt flannel thing, you know, he, he marks off all of the uh, the little check marks on that list. Yeah, it's also worth mentioning that they they do have a good amount of land, and they are on a body of water as well. They have a boat and like a nice little dock, so it is definitely a nice um, nice place. It's just it's seen better days as far as just not being well kept right now. It's definitely run down, but I mean it, it is a, a veritable mansion in the bayou. So our main character is going to recover at her dad's house, and uh, she does have a wheelchair. Um, that's the main way she gets around. But uh, the dad just kind of, you know, plops her in a, in a room that it used to be her mother's room, and it had been sealed off from the rest of the house. So it's actually in pretty good shape, um, but just totally not used in a long time. In fact, it, there was like a dresser that was blocking the door to come in, and all the the windows had been shut. So that no light had been coming in. So once all of that is kind of undone, it, it, it looks like a pretty decent room. But she's just like left to her own device. And um, she's going to, quote, recover. But there's nowhere for her to go. She's stuck in this house. And um, so she just starts kind of poking around and seeing what is in her mother's room. You know, it's she didn't know her mother because she died in tr- childbirth or, you know, around that time. So... She just kind of starts going through mother's things to kind of get an idea of, you know, uh, connection to her. She finds a couple of like uh, trashy romance novels, a little uh, ceramic bird in her clothes, some clothes. And she finds uh, a, a box under the bed containing some video cassettes. And on the, the lid of the box, it says Jezebel. So that's our main protagonist's name, right? 
So inside the box, uh, there's the tapes, there's uh, some tarot cards, there's what else? I guess that's kind of it. I really think that was it that was in there. All I remember were just some videotapes. I guess the tarot cards were in the little um, the chest. There was yeah, a little jewelry yeah. box or something. The mother also dabbled in tarot. Yes. So uh, she finds this tape that's addressed to her, so she puts it on. And uh, it's a video from her mother before she passed away, recording a message to her on her 18th birthday, which has since come and gone, and she's never seen this. And she wants, you know, she's like, says, hi, I love you, and all this fun stuff. And it's a very touching and emotional period. And she's like, oh, so I'm going to give you a tarot reading. And then she just uh, puts the, you know, first card, you know, is death. And she's like, well, no, death isn't death. It means transition, you know, which is what I've heard in every tarot reading I've ever had. So it must be true, right? And then she's like, oh, wait a minute. There's a presence in the house. It wants you out. And then her dad comes and turns off the television and flips out and smashes the tape and just kind of leaves her to cower in the chair like any good father would. Yeah. And the mom makes a number of predictions at this time. You know, she starts saying, you know, like about how the, how the, the child's never going to leave this, this small town and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And the daughter's like, well, none of that came true. Um, so, you know, she doesn't put a whole lot of stock in that. Um, cause all the predictions just are, are wrong for where she's at at her current time in life. And like you said, the dad comes in and just breaks it and has a, a very strong reaction to it. A very strong reaction. He, um, I would even call it a violent reaction, just not physically violent towards her, but it's amazing. He didn't smash the TV while he was at it. That would have been a smart plan. Yeah. It would have been the a VHS smart. player. Yes. Yeah, because that. So he ends up uh, basically he you know he destroys stuff and then goes away. She cowers. Next morning he's like, "Oh, I made breakfast. Sorry, I was drunk. It won't happen again." It's like every alcoholic says that. And then he you know goes off and goes to work. And I think after that she finds more tapes. Yeah, more tapes. Yeah, she's looking through, because uh, she doesn't tell the dad where she found the tapes, so she still has the box. Uh, and so she, she starts with the next tape, which ends up being a more lighthearted, I think, tape, the next one. It starts off like that. She's like, oh, so I talked to Moses, who taught me tarot, and he said that, you know, the, the presence in the house is actually you, and then I'm going to do another reading, and then she gets even more upset. As she does this next reading, because things are, appear to be even worse. Mm. She does also have a, uh, in between, she has like kind of night terrors. Um, so that it's similar to kind of the scene in the hospital where she's just getting bits and pieces of it. Mm-hmm. She's seeing things and it's kind of disconnected from reality. So I think the first night is when there's the sheet and uh, she sees in, someone sitting in her wheelchair. But then there's no one there when she pulls back the, the sheet. There's a number of these kind of scenes where it's bending between, is she asleep? Is this reality? You know, what's going on exactly? It's it's really hard for us to gauge what is reality and what are dreams at times, and even more so for our char- main character. She always seems, you know, to wake up and then things are fine whenever she does wake up. So it does seem more like, 
these kind of supernatural dreams or, or unsettling dreams she's having. But the tapes definitely have a big impact on her. They're definitely not helping her psychological stability at this incredibly precarious time. Right. Just after losing her own child and her, her, her man, and now being stuck with her alcoholic father. Yeah. So that kind of lays the groundwork for that. Uh, soon after, though, her father discovers that, oh, she found more tapes, and then... And he's just way off. Like, you know, he hasn't been very fatherly or warm or anything throughout this whole process. Not in the least. But that really sets him off. And he decides, you know, I'm going to burn him. You know, because that's what you do with, with well, magnetic tapes is burn them apparently. Before he does that, though, even. Before. Because uh, he doesn't even want her to go anywhere. So that's the part where he takes the wheelchair and goes down to the end of the dock and throws it off the end. Uh, he did that the fir- at, when he saw the first tape. Oh, okay. But yeah, he, he threw her perfectly nice new wheelchair in the lake. After she found the first tape, and said, no more snooping. Yeah, so that she can't get into stuff. Yeah. Incredibly heartwarming and, and comforting, especially at such a delicate time. <laughs> the man shows a lot of sympathy for her situation. But yeah, so he catches her watching more tapes. Or is it? No, he didn't. Ca- yeah, it doesn't matter. He finds more tapes. He flips out. He decides, hey, I'm going to burn him. So he throws him in like one of those rusted out oil barrels and goes to his shed and grabs some gasoline. And this is the, the second of a couple of things that caught my attention a little bit. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the very first one was actually the very beginning of the film when her boyfriend is carrying a, a CRTV, cathode ray tube television, and he's picking it up like the thing's clearly empty. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't have the weight and substance substance that it required yeah if any of you have ever carried around a large crtv you know those things are incredibly heavy yeah they took the insides out for the for the movie they absolutely did the way he just kind of just sets it in the trunk without it going like thud so that was the first thing that kind of like jolted me out of my suspension of disbelief the next part is when uh the father leon grabs a can of gasoline You know, he goes and he pours it on the barrel. Then he goes, looks, you know, for some matches, finds a Zippo. Boom, his his arm catches fire. And then the gas cans start catching fire and the whole shed catches fire. And then whatever presence that has been uh, haunting uh, Jesse kind of locks him in this shed. It's very much a... uh What's that, that movie? The one where the people die and it's like in, in in a certain like Rube Goldberg kind of way. Yeah. What were those called? Final Destination. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was very much like that. It, it was. It, that's a good good analogy there. But the thing with the, the problem with that scene, gasoline is explosive and combustible. It doesn't just catch fire. It was such a bad error. Yeah. All they had to do was put lighter fluid. You know, if you wanted just an accelerant, then just make an accelerant. Don't put a combustible explosive item in there and then just have it catch fire like it's just regular. I That was just a rookie mistake, I think, on their part. Yeah. But anyway, Leon dies. He cooks to a crisp. There's a funeral. She finds her old uh, boyfriend, Preston. They never say that he's her boyfriend, but they allude to it. Yeah. 
they were definitely friends growing up and then maybe a little more than maybe a little school. more maybe a little more maybe and anyway she has another one of her you know haunting episodes at the place sees a, a half burnt man who kind of, kind of eyeballs her like it's her fault she says and a bunch of strange rituals with like drawings and stuff like that yeah a lot a lot of hoodoo kind of stuff and you know she wakes up and mr mr preston is still there by her bedside keeping his vigil and you know, pretty much the only person she has left in the world. Ah, uh, God, what the hell happened after that? They start, they go on an, a bit of an investigation. So she starts telling him the things she's seen um, in her dreams, and he's kind of trying to help her interpret them. And so he, he says, well, what if, um, I think that's like when he says, I guess they just go outside. They That's go out the for breakfast. They go out for breakfast and they chat about how nobody's life has really improved in their little tiny town. Right. And they, they end up going outside in the backyard and they see something like shining across the uh, lake. I guess it's a lake or a river. Whatever it is. The body of water that they're on. Yeah. They see some like shining things. And she had seen them earlier, but I guess kind of just thought it was her mind playing tricks on her. But the guy can see them as well. So they go to investigate, and it turns out there's like more of the hoodoo stuff. There's like, you know, pieces of glass and stuff that the light's shining off of, and like broken mirror and mm-hmm. stuff, and like masks and like, I just don't know, like designs and stuff. A lot of, a lot of Haitian voodoo stuff. Yeah. A lot of Creole voodoo. And they find then a grave site in the woods that has like new flowers and. A freshly sacrificed chicken. Sacrificed animal. And uh, the name on the gravestone is Jezebel. With a death date of her birth date. Right. So the plot thickens. So at first she thinks maybe that someone's messing with them. But the, the, the number, the it doesn't really add up. Like who would be doing this and, you know, why is this here? The dad's dead so they can't ask any questions anymore. I don't think he would have answered him anyway. Well. Right. <laughs> he he was never very helpful. It's very true. He could have got mad about it at least. That's right. He could have like, you know, set the boat on fire with gasoline. <laughs> set the forest on fire. <laughs> set the forest on fire. Yeah, so they decide that they're going to come back at night when it's creepier and darker. Well, they had to get supplies. And more dangerous. And they just couldn't wait. They couldn't, huh? The, the plot needed to move on. The plot needed to move on, and I guess nighttime was creepier. Yeah, it was creepier for the big reveal that uh, yeah. they, they, they dig into the ground to see if, you know, someone's messing with them or if there's something there. Yeah. And there is, in fact, a, a casket in the ground that has a baby in it. Uh, so, Ken, uh, there are a lot of... Th- you know that meat Meatloaf meat love song? You know, I do anything for love, but I won't do that. Yeah. There's a lot of things that I would do for love, Ken. Uh-huh. Going out into the bayou in the middle of the night to dig up a grave is not necessarily at the top of that list. Yeah. I wouldn't even say it's in like the top 50. Right. But this guy just does it just as a matter of course of just helping his friend. Yes. And this this married guy just does it just to quote unquote help his friend. Well, I think you get the feeling though that really there it's more than that, which they keep trying to deny. But the thing is, it's like they would still be together if she hadn't moved away and and went to college. 
you know, they have a strong connection still, even though they, they don't know each other, you know, they haven't been around each other for a long time. They still do have a strong connection. Ken, would you go out to the bayou with me and dig up a baby's grave? I mean, it depends on the circumstances. Okay, so you're not saying no. If a bunch of spooky stuff was happening, probably no. <laughs> probably no. But I yeah, yeah, probably no. I'm just saying. I mean, like you know, we've been friends a long time. Anything wants. We're pretty close. You know? Anything wants. All right. <laughs> okay, so I, I guess I guess that answers that. So moving on, they find a uh, they they find the the bones of a uh, they find the skeletal remains of an infant. Yeah. They call the sheriff. The sheriff is v- very angry and very redneck looking and really wants to know what the relationship is between those two people. Well, and you got to imagine too, like this is in just a couple of days, like her, her father died in a terrible accident. Yes. A fire. And then now all of a sudden they find a, a baby's body. Like They just randomly find a baby's body it, it, on their property. Yes. Like, you know, it's, I will say as far as this movie goes, the reaction of the sheriff was seemed very realistic. Uh, it was very realistic, but I would have arrested them. Yeah. I would have at least booked them for questioning. I guess. I, I feel like they got off light with just like making a statement. I feel like that's a country thing too, though. Like everyone knows everyone. And it's like the whole small not, town not, thing. Not like they're going to run away. You yeah, know? And I guess in her case, she literally could not run yeah. away because she can't walk. <laughs> okay. So good point. But, but still they want to, I feel like the reaction should have been a little stronger there. They still like, they want to do an investigation. They're going to, they took DNA samples from the, the dad, obviously who had just died the autopsy. And then, uh, Jesse herself, you know, just to see if, if they're related to this child. And uh, at this point it's like, well, Jesse can't stay in this house anymore. Like too much has happened and she decides to go stay with, um, Boyo. Preston. Preston. And, uh, Oh, great. Great scene. So, so he takes her to his double wide with his very, very angry looking wife, just hanging out on double wide. It was a single wide. Was it a single wide? Okay. So he takes her to his trailer where his very angry wife is like, it's one in the morning and I have to work. And, uh, my favorite part of that is that she was, uh, played by Larissa Olenek. Anyway, uh, Alex Mack from the secret world of Alex Mack from Nickelodeon. If you remember, you know, pretty cool actress done a lot of stuff. She has like this one small scene in this film as just this, this angry, bitter wife who was actually all things considered pretty cool about it. Yeah. I mean, it was deserved. I mean, you know, it was totally deserved because I mean, her husband's been running around with this really hot redhead. Just for, you know, all day long. He even stayed the night over. And she's she's just like, I need to go to work. You can sleep on the couch. I get the feeling that he wouldn't go into the bayou to dig up a corpse for his wife. Absolutely not. So that, that shows you. Absolutely. That it really is. did. Yeah. It was a marriage of convenience. It's just that, you know, that's a small town. It was the people that were left. They don't seem like they're in love at all. They're just, you know, they live together. Man. No, thanks. Yeah. No, thanks. And then the very next day, you know, they go off gallivanting around, you know, on more adventures, well, doing decide, more sleuthing. They decide to do their own investigation and they think, well, there was a cook we had growing up. I wonder if she knew anything. So, you know, about who who this baby could have been. Obviously, she was there. So uh, they go to the, the maid, the not maid, 
They go to the cook's house, and she is like catatonic. Mrs. Davis, yeah, she looks like she's 100 years old and just surprisingly well made up for how mentally gone she is. You know, and, and Preston's able to be like, oh, I used to play with your son and, you know, yada. And he, he gets a, he's able to trigger a reaction from her that's sedate but pleasant. And then the other, you know, Jezebel comes up. It's like, I'm Jezebel. And then, you know, uh, old Haitian cook lady starts singing a possession incantation, which is not comforting or settling to anybody. Yes. And they leave. <laughs> yeah. And then they, they find get, they, uh, get, they get spooked off, and they talk about uh, they start talking about oh, and then uh, the the old Haitian lady talks about Moses. Mm-hmm. She mentions Moses, who was Moses is the person who taught her uh, Jezebel's mother how to play tarot, right, or use tarot, whatever, pl- operate the tarot card deck. Correct. So they want to you know go looking for him, and they end up finding a uh, a burnt down house. With a framed picture of Moses, which is incredibly convenient. Yes. And then a bunch of angry uh, locals uh, start beating up the boy, Preston, Presto. And it's it's worth noting that that like the thing with uh, Moses is like another shrine like we've seen earlier. Like there's a freshly sacrificed animal there, you know, a bunch of candles and flowers and whatnot. So it's a it's very similar too the earlier thing and it also was revealed then that he also died at the same time yeah he also died on jessabelle's birthday which is also the same death day as the uh the unknown unnamed infant so something serious is going on here and it's connected to more things than just you know yeah and the, and i want to point out too the death date was like in the late 80s mm-hmm. and this is presumably the film was made in 2014 and it appears to be set around that time I don't know anybody who would keep a shrine to me and continue to sacrifice animals in my memory 20 plus years after I'm gone, much less two weeks after I'm gone. How about you, Ken? Yeah, that's some dedication. It seems like a lot of work. It's a lot of animals that you don't get to eat because, you know, they just, you know, they're dead and they rot. It's a lot of visits. It's a lot of time out of your day. You know, like you've got to, you've got to go leave your house, drive to this location. Uh, you have to pr- procure supplies. So, I mean, it's not only a huge investment of capital, but also time and energy. And it just seems like an awful lot of work. Yeah. Yeah, it does. But that's what religious cults kind of do. Yeah. And it's definitely one of those things where the, the people, you know, the people that are, are acting shady, this culty group kind of. Like they are, um, like they know something else is happening, like they're in on it, kind of. So you get, you get the the feeling that they, I don't know. They're definitely protecting the site. Yeah, they're protecting it. They're like dedicated to it. And then once they realize who Jezebel is, they they leave them alone. But just to revisit my point again. All of the time, I'm going to beat this dead horse. All of the time that they spend at these shrines and sacrificing these animals, like the, you know, I'm just saying transportation costs, the time for the transportation to get to and fro, the the, the money requirement. This is why I'm not in a cult, Ken. Yeah. 
It, I don't have enough free time for that. I would rather my, my disposable income go to other hobbies that don't involve sacrificing animals. I just don't, I just can't do it. Yeah. No, I'm with you there. It's definitely not worth it. That's a good thing to agree on, but there's quite, apparently there's, they have nothing better to do than to sacrifice animals and, and, and do these rituals. I think they do other things. It's just like, it's a very important thing to them. And we find out why later, but when we find out why later. So uh, th- at this point, they decide to head back, right? I I mean, do, do we even know anymore? Yeah. They, I mean, oh, oh, oh. I, I, there's a lot of driving around. I think at some point around this time, they decide that they're just going to get her out of there because mm-hmm. something else happened. I don't know. There's more, I, more haunting kind of things. Th- there's a lot of haunting stuff and there's a lot like, of nightmares. And we, Earlier on, like there's a point in time where we didn't even mention this, but she's like in the tub. And the care, there's like a caretaker that's coming to help her with rehab. And uh, the tub turns into like oil. And then there's like this other creepy ghost lady in the tub. The same creepy ghost lady that we, we see in pretty much every little haunting spell. Yeah. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. And it, it screams at her and like, you know. But when, when the, the nurse lady comes back, everything looks normal again. Yeah. So we do have several hauntings kind of like that. Midday hauntings. In between. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So there's lots of driving. There's lots of talking. There's lots of sleuthing. There's lots of, is this really happening? Is it not happening? Um, In another dream sequence, which apparently did take place because a mirror gets broken that we see is still broken in real life later. You know, she finds another video cassette tape, which she just throws aside but doesn't watch. You know, and you spend the next 20 minutes of the film being like, watch the tape, play the tape, what's on the tape. And, you know, cert- you know certainly they were well healed because to have that many blank video cassettes in the 80s, you know, that was a sign of prosperity there. Those things were not cheap. Yeah. You know, like a lot of them, like, the, you know, the retail value was like $20 per tape. That's not adjusted for inflation. So, I mean, you'd be looking at $30, $40 for inflation per tape today. So, I'm just saying, to have a lot of blank tapes like that, I mean, yeah, you can find them at Goodwill for nothing. I'm just saying, back in the day, that was uh, that was quite an investment. Just just another note about the, the former glory of this home that they live in. This has been Tape Investment Advice with Brian. Oh, I'm not even, I'm not even warmed up yet. <laughs> So, uh, so eventually we get to the point where she decides she's going to leave. That's really where we're headed, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm trying to kind of narrow in on that. So, uh, you know, pretty boy decides like, hey, you're not going to, you're we're not going to come back here. We're just going to get your stuff and get out. Too many spooky things happened. You know, which is fair. I mean, I personally would not be, I'd be sleeping with both eyes open, polishing a shotgun by this point. I would not feel safe or comfortable in this house. So, you know, they're rounding up things and everything. And then, you know, pretty boy gets, uh, gets Jezebel out of the house, gets her in the car. He gets in the car and it turns out it's spooky dead girl. Yeah. He didn't have Jezebel at all. He didn't have Jezebel at all. He had spooky, spooky dead girl. And she looks like she like wants to make love to him, but also kick his ass. Yeah. It's like, very weird. Like at first, she it doesn't seem like threatening at all. No. 
But when he like is like, which is noteworthy, it was like that earlier in the tub too. Yeah, that she not doesn't necessarily start off scary. I mean, she looks scary, but yeah, she doesn't necessarily start off threatening until she did, she's threatened. Exactly. Yeah. So it's definitely a reactionary thing. So he freaks out, which pisses her off. Yeah. And she's like clawing at him and kind of kicking his ass a little bit. And then meanwhile, we find you know our Jezebel, our human Jezebel. Still putting things away and grabbing stuff to take to wherever they're going to go. And, you know, she goes out and finds Preston, get, got his ass kicked by a dead girl. You know, I mean, how do you live that down? It's like, I, you know, he never admits to her what happened. Let's just point that out. So anyway, you know, sheriff guy comes up again and, you know, he, he's getting increasingly suspicious that something really screwy is not is going on things are not right i mean anybody could probably see that a mile away at this point and she's just like you know okay so she finds out that you know oh so we got you know the autopsy back from the the dead baby the dead baby the baby was murdered they're still analyzing dna hopefully we'll have a match soon she wants to know like oh is preston okay you know, let me know when, or yeah, she says, let me know when he's going to, when he comes to, and if he's all right. So later she puts on the tape. God, what, what tape, what, which tape was that? The, the tape it's, from it's the, the, the behind the mirror, tape. the it's, last tape, it's the tape with the mom and the baby and the baby yeah. is on the bed and there's like a pistol on the bed and the mom is just absolutely losing it and coughing up blood. And the mom had a brain tumor apparently. Yeah. And, uh, Jezebel is not the right Jezebel. No. There's another baby. There is another baby. So she basically watches her mother commit suicide on that videotape. And then the sheriff calls. And naturally, because it's a horror film, uh, he has really bad uh, cell phone reception, right? Or or she does. Yeah. The first time it's happened. The first time it's happened. It's very hard to get through all of a sudden. But basically, you know, she finds out, okay, Preston's, he's come to, he doesn't want to go to the hospital. He wants to come back and protect her from whatever's in that house. You know, like any good uh, married man of another woman would do. You know, putting putting your old friends first, if you know what I mean. And uh, he says something about the DNA match with the baby. I didn't quite catch what he said. Yeah, it's, he was saying that it didn't match either. Didn't match either, yeah. So the baby didn't match the dad or the sister, or Jezebel. Yeah, didn't. Yeah, so the yeah the baby was black. Yep, African American. Oh, I, I guess at this point I should just say all the characters have been white folk. Yes. And in the case of our Jezebel, she is a pasty, beautiful ginger. Yes. So definitely not uh, African American by any stretch, or Haitian, as may be the case. Yeah. Yeah. And. Then she suddenly sees her dead mother in the doorway. Yep. So she has a big old vision and her mom is there and her mom is trying to guide her through to understand what happened, you know, try to put all the pieces together and uh, on what's going on. And it turns out that the other baby was the actual baby. The actual Jezebel. And that Moses was a bit more than a friend that had been teaching her tarot. He was was more than a church buddy. He was a secret lover. 
So when the, when the baby was born and it came out black, the dad knew it was not his baby. And that it put him into a drunken rage. And, uh, yeah, he killed the baby and then he went and killed Moses. Yep. He and went, then, he went and shot Moses and burned his house down. So that was, that was the connection to, you know, this shrine that was supposedly out in the woods was actually Moses house that he had burned down in. And he had, was the, the burned man that, that Jesse had seen in her dreams and yeah. her, her visions. Pretty tough revelation to to have all at once, and then she has a vision of uh, her mother and Moses, who I guess is not her mother after all. Right. She was the adopted baby to hide the fact that her mother was uh, cheating on her husband. We should have picked up too that Jesse didn't look like either of her parents. Not by a long shot. So that that also would, would have been a big tip off. Yeah. So anyway, she has this vision of Moses and her mother, you know, rubbing blood on her forehead and tying her to a wheelchair and telling her that Jezebel's going to get what's hers. And, you know, they basically just toss her into, into the lake and Jezebel comes swimming and takes this bracelet that she's been wanting. That was her mother's bracelet that's been on our Jesse's arm. And right when all this is happening, too, is right when the sheriff shows back up with the boyfriend. Yeah. And they see Jesse rolling towards the dock. And it's a great uh, kind of tying in with the rest of the, the spooky scenes we've had earlier where things go are the, the spooky visions kind of world. And then all the normal people see what's actually happening, which is Jesse just rolling herself into off of the dock. Yeah. So it's kind of got that cool dual like in her mind, it's one thing. And then in reality, it's another thing. Well, her reality is just simply different from yeah. their reality. Right. That's a scary thought, isn't it? Yes. Taken to an extreme. So she rolls off into the water and dead Jezebel shows up. Takes that bracelet. Yep. Which, you know, apparently has a lot of sentimental value to the dead girl. And she gives, you know, a very ginger kiss. Ginger, <laughs> no pun intended. You know, very gentle kiss on, you know, Jesse's forehead and then swims up and Boom. It's our Jesse who escaped the water, or is it? Nope. No. And that's basically, you know, that's basically the movie. And she, she, you know, kisses the, 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 the man that, that Jesse loved. Presto. And yeah. basically just says like, you know. Take me home, lover. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this guy has been wanting to get his dick wet this entire film. So, you know, he's just going to be like, I mean, as he's carrying her back to the house, yeah. he has an incredibly determined look on his face. Yeah, his his old marriage is over. His marriage is over. He's got this hot red head. He just, he knows what he has to do. Yeah. I mean, he did, he dug up a dead body for her. Yep. Little did he know. He's holding the spirit of that dead baby in his arms. Which kind of raises a question. If the dead girl died as an infant, would the soul not be considered a minor? I mean, I guess if it's been around this whole time, it's, is that living? Yeah, it's not really living, though, when you're just being like, you know, uh, this, creepy. The spirit has aged, though. Uh, I guess that's true, which is also kind of weird. Yeah. Yeah. So, but that's basically the movie. Our, our really nice, sweet girl. Gets replaced by the dead girl's soul. Yep. Which is very unfortunate because she really, you know, at the beginning of this film, 
she was she was pregnant and she had a great great guy and she was about to start a new life and then some semi truck driver couldn't watch where they were going so this movie is really about bad driving and why you need to keep both eyes on the road at all times you've cracked the code i've cracked the code so let's uh let's uh let's review a few points here so best performance in the film um I mean, I would say Jesse. I would say, or I actually would say the the dead mother, Kate. Okay, played by Joelle Carter. She's the one who actually has uh, the most wide range of emotion for the most part in those little flashback scenes. She does a pretty good job being the hysterical, crazy mother. I think Pres- Preston did a great job too of in that kind of like, you know, the guy that got stuck in the hometown. And is kind of pathetic and, you know, just wants to be with this person coming back into his life. He's not even pathetic. He's just very average. Like he doesn't have, he doesn't have anything going for him that like not everybody around him has going for him. But like he's a likable enough person. He is, you know, he's very sympathetic. He's, he's a gentle soul. Uh, he cares. And you realize quickly, like he's, he's genuine. Yeah. He's not, he doesn't have like an ulterior motive really. Like he's very, he's very plain and open about you know his failing marriage and the fact that he's just like hey, you know, i'm just gonna do whatever so i guess that would be my pick yeah so i mean yeah there they were none of them really stood out but there was a lot of competent acting is what I'll, I'll say yeah for for a horror movie which typically i have kind of a lower bar for individual performance sure um not relating to the horror aspects i i think they all did a pretty good job and I guess it's also worth noting that none of those other characters had anything to do with the horror scenes. It was always just Jesse. It always was, yeah. And, you know, the other ones weren't really involved. I mean, uh, Sarah Snook as Jesse definitely did the lion's share of work in this film. Yeah. So, I mean, she probably deserves just the best best, uh, performance nod. On the other hand... She had that open mouthed vacant look thing going on way too much. Right. And that takes a couple of points off. I think you, that's exactly right. So like wherever she excelled, that brought it down a little bit to, so she's just kind of on par with the rest of them. Cause the parts where she's talking and emoting, like those are good, pretty good. But then the parts where she's just looking at stuff, like you said, it's a little vacant, little, you know, you could see wheels. It's a lot of, it's a lot of, uh, so, I mean, you get a lot of that and it's, it just, it, it, it kind of brings things back down. Yeah. But overall though, I mean, all the acting is all well evenly matched. I thought. Yeah, definitely agree. Um, I really liked just seeing David Andrews again as Leon, her, her so-called dad. Uh, he's in Terminator three plays general Brewster. He's in Apollo 13 in a small role. He's just one of those character actors that's been in a lot of stuff. One thing that really cracked me up though is just to kind of nitpick some more because, you know, that's what we're here for. In the, one of the old tapes that she puts on is like from Christmas 86. And they're, you know, you see the house when it was like in its splendor. And, you know, they're all well-dressed and well-heeled and they have all these friends. And he announces his, hey, my wife is with child and it's all a happy moment. David Andrews is wearing exactly the same hair and makeup as he did in his scenes 20 plus years later. He's got the same grayish shaggyish hair, 
the same grayish, shaggyish facial hair. They made no effort to make him look younger or more together. And the sad thing about that too is like it's a low quality video tape that you're just showing on a TV on screen. Yeah, they could have totally just combed some black into his his hair. They could have done anything. And you wouldn't have even noticed. No, it'd have been great. You know that it was a low effect makeup. You know. Yeah. Or you know even just have him shave for that scene. They could have done anything. Yeah. And they done they did nothing. Well, it's it's like the people who made the film thought we'd be too stupid to figure out who it was mm. if they changed too much. That Maybe. was probably their decision. Maybe, yeah. Uh, there's only like like you said a couple minor things like that that definitely pull you out a little bit. But it's in the end, you know, it's no big deal. It's just it would have been nice if they they just went that one percent further. It, it would have made a nice those little details like that TV, mm-hmm. the gasoline thing, that makeup effect at the end. Overall, I mean, they're pretty minor, minor niggles. They don't really affect the story. Yeah. It doesn't affect the story at all if that TV's heavy or not. It doesn't affect the story if the gasoline necessarily exploded or not. The end result was still the same. Things caught fire and the guy died. I would also complain, because um, this is a more of a personal thing, about the shaky cam during the the scenes where, where Swamp Jezebel is tussling with people yeah yeah because the the rest of the 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 film is very steady and the shots are very yeah it, it really does that like that hyper focused like shaky cam thing the shots are very well framed the rest of the movie and i felt like we really didn't need that hand cam shaky look we really didn't it, it was already it was already spooky enough like the parts where they were tussling was not spooky um because of all that I feel like the spirit. It would have been, been way more unsettling to have a fixed camera with that going on. Yeah, I, I, I just think we could have done without the tussling altogether. Yeah, I mean having having something physically manifest to a point where it can kick your ass uh, can work depending on the film and the 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 overall setup. I don't feel like that was really. It felt out of place. Mm-hmm. Like when, uh, when dead girl, dead Jezebel kicks Preston's ass in front of the house in broad daylight. That felt a bit of a stretch. I like, I liked it in theory. I liked the part the fact that he brought the wrong person out to the car. Yeah. The setup for that was great. And the, it was spooky enough on its yeah. own. They showed us too much. Yeah. They showed us too much. Like, the, we could have just seen her lunge at him and then see it, the aftermath. They showed us too much with that. Especially the fact that it would have just been quiet inside. Because yeah. Jezebel inside didn't even notice. Yeah, she didn't hear anything. Because it was, you know, spooky. Yeah, they just showed us too much sometimes. And I, that kind of goes, connects to my, my biggest complaint about this film is the dead girl herself. Not the actress, not how she played it. Just the fact that it's the the typical spooky dead girl with the dark stringy hair and the the big dark eyes and the sharpened teeth. It's such a... I haven't been impressed or unnerved by that since The Ring. Yeah. In 2002. Yeah. That was, for me, the, the archetypal original 
spooky dead girl. And I know there's people that's like, oh, well, it's actually based on Ringu from Japan and yeah, whatever. The first time I saw it was that film. So that's, that was my bar for that. Right. That's at the standard for that. And I feel like it's just been way overdone. Yeah. And we didn't need one more. They could have done something a little more interesting too for kind of the played up the the Haitian ritual angle. Because, you know, there's some in the kind of flashback we see the people doing the ritual. Yeah. Like they should have gone more for that kind of thing. Have you ever seen uh in the mouth of not in the mouth of madness? God. The serpent and the rainbow. No. So that is a film starring Bill Pullman from like nineteen eighty seven. I want to say Wes Craven directed it. I might be wrong, but I think it was Wes Craven. And uh, that is all about Haitian voodoo, black magic. And uh, a lot of it, you know, takes place in Haiti. And that's a genuinely spooky film that touches on some of these subjects a little more intelligently, I think. At least they, you know, they... They, they approach it from a more scientific perspective at times, and they, they give a little more actual information as opposed to just being vague about what's going on. And that is definitely uh, a film I would definitely recommend people if you enjoy that type of that type of subject matter. But that would be a good one to do someday if it's ever free on YouTube. I haven't watched it in probably 15 years, maybe longer. But that film did come to mind when I was watching this. I did appreciate there was uh, a number of times when things paid off, like little details paid off later in the film and not in like a super obvious way. Um, one that came to mind at the, in the very last scene is the dad pushing the wheelchair off the dock. Oh, yeah, that was good foreshadowing. And earlier in the movie, yeah, you know, foreshadowed the fact that she would be pushed off the dock in the end of the movie. Um, also the thing with the bracelet earlier where the, the shadow lady was trying to take it off her while she was sleeping or while she couldn't yeah. resist. And that, that turned out to be the thing she needed to, you know, become real. That's the way I interpret. Yeah. It that, that, that really, uh, it's like once she got that, she could then take over the body. Cause I almost took it as part of like, maybe that the bracelet was part of the ritual. Yeah. It might've been. Because I guess we also should mention that, you know, there was that mention earlier of the the spirits, you know, calling spirits to inhabit your body. Yeah. Um, and a, just a very basic understanding of all of that. And then the mom says, you know, what she did, her part of the ritual, killing herself, keeps the door open. So it's like, you know, she prepared the, um, she prepared Jesse to eventually take actual Jezebel's. Like spirit, man. What does that just say about the fostering system and adoption system in this country? Uh, you just just can't just can't trust anybody, can you? I was impressed by the ending of this film because I think a major. I'm assuming this was more of an indie kind of. It was not a big budget affair, that's for sure. Production, and uh, I just don't think that most people would have the balls to do that like as an ending as far as just having your main character like it is not a happy ending completely fail it is just not a happy ending and it's it's not happy but it's to me anyway it was satisfying it was you know because it was it it was a pretty good ending and 
and you do have to admit, it does take some balls to have your main character be really likable, very sweet, and just literally from the opening scene to the end of the movie, things just get worse. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, opening scene. Oh, your baby's dead and your boyfriend's dead. Oh, we find out your mom's dead. Oh, we find out your, your aunt died. Here's your alcoholic dad. Oh, he's dead too. Oh, here's your here's a former romantic interest. Oh, he's married. It's like they took everything from her and then killed her. They really did. She had absolutely nothing left by the end except except Presto there. Yeah. Man. Just you know, true for many people in life though. But anyway, I just appreciate all those little details in this movie. They did it was thoughtful. Their kind of layout of all of that kind of stuff. They actually had a plan when they made the film, which is something you don't see very well or very often in some of these free movies. Not that it was free when it was made, but you know, yeah. the caliber of film that we tend to review on this channel is not necessarily always as well thought out, but we've been on a really good streak for a while of uh, getting some pretty good films in. Uh, maybe I can just completely screw that up next week with a, uh, a nice pick. Just roll those dice. Just roll those dice. So, uh, in summary, Ken, and in review, have we watched a film that fulfills our three primary criteria? Was it well-written? I would say it was definitely thoughtfully written. I would say it was well-written. It was not fantastically written, but it was well-written. I don't, I wouldn't praise the dialogue necessarily. Uh, It was not memorable, but it was functional. And like I said, the, the actual... Actual, you know, parts of it were well planned out and well balanced and well, um, like the what's that called? The the pace, yeah, the The pace pace was was good. good. I would say that, uh, you yeah, like the dialogue wasn't memorable, but I'll say that the script served the story pretty well. Yes, you and I were definitely our attention was kept on this film the whole time. Definitely agreed. It was, it, it definitely, it, it, it pulled you in and it, it kept you there pretty well. Mm-hmm. So I'm definitely going to say it was well written. Was it well acted? I think, uh, I think overall, yeah, it was very well acted. It is not Shakespeare. It is not Broadway. It is not a Oscar winner, but it was, it was good. Yeah. And I think it was by the nature of the story. It was more about the things happening to the people and the mystery they were unraveling. And that's really about the individual characters themselves. Absolutely. So I think it, they, they all played that well. As a mis- yeah, I mean, when you look at it more as a mystery than a, than a, uh, more as a, like a mystery thriller than like a horror film, it definitely, definitely works better that way. Mm-hmm. And lastly, uh, well-produced. Yeah, definitely. I'd say, I, I would say it's, I'd give it eight out of 10 for production. Yeah. They had, I mean, they had this nice, uh, perfect looking house for this kind of movie with some nice land and you know, the other places they go in between or look like believable rural Louisiana, you know? Yeah. I mean, it was just well shot. Well, you know, well, well lit. Scenes were well composed. Well lit. Night 19s were good. Yeah. The, the dream sequences looked kind of off with the lighting and stuff like that. It definitely, you can definitely tell it was a lower budget because of the way that they compose some of the shots. They definitely, it definitely had a more like stage theatrical kind of vibe to it at times. Yeah. But I also really like that. I appreciate it with this film because yeah. they didn't use the CGI. Like that could have ruined this film if they had put in CGI like sometimes they do in these kind of movies. You know, that's a really good point. I didn't really think. See, here's the thing. I, I always talk about the CGI when I see it Yeah. because I hate it. 
and it just spoils so much. And there was next, not much. Yeah. It would have ruined like, this movie if they had tried to put crappy CGI in this movie. Yeah. Cause I mean, what you really see for CGI now that I'm thinking about it, there's a, there's a scene where like a mirror bends and breaks. And even then, I mean, I would have to look at it again to really see like, is that CGI or not? Yeah. I mean, everything else seemed practical. Yeah. It, very nice. See, it gets high praise just for that. Yeah. You know, actual actual practical effects. It, and that's the way to do it for a movie like this because everything else in the film was very grounded in this like town and in this place. And so to keep it in that, you know, because they found a way to make it unsettling in the dreams anyway. Yeah. Where you didn't need a bunch of special effects like that. I'm just saying just a, a dark figure reaching out to you through your your bed curtains towards you that's spooky enough yeah sitting in your wheelchair sitting in your wheelchair you know you don't you don't need doesn't need to be a cgi girl sitting in your wheelchair right reaching towards your cgi curtains which we see so often i'm saying if the creepy girl would have had like the you know the the big mouth or like the you know the the oh yeah the trope trope stuff that was doing these scary movies nowadays i mean just just the overall look of her was bad enough but again at least it does serve the story I'm just saying, if they had made it like a CGI monster, it would have been even way worse. It would have been terrible. All right, so I guess uh, that's uh, I guess we'd both recommend this film. So if you haven't seen it, you should definitely check it out. Yep, definitely decent horror film and uh, interesting kind of mystery thriller. I would actually watch it a second time, Ken. Wow, it is very high praise. That's high praise. I don't I don't watch films more than once usually, but I'd watch this one again. All right, uh, that's a wrap for tonight's episode here at the O&M Stockroom. We're your hosts, Brian McGarry. And Ken O'Malley. If you enjoyed this segment of Complimentary Cinema, more episodes can be found at omstockroom.com, along with links to our Patreon page and various streaming outlets. I think we're probably most popular on Apple. Yeah. That's where we get most of our traffic. Any podcast subscription service is great, though. Yes. And uh, thank you for listening, and we'll be back uh, next Wednesday with an all-new episode.